Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. Got a pretty good baritone going today. I don't know. I don't know where this came from, but praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for small miracles, I reckon. Genesis 47. We are going to finish the chapter. Uh, that's all I intend to do tonight. Uh, there, there's enough here, I'm sure, uh, for us to deal with. But essentially, I've, I've titled this outline, Relocating the Masses. Uh, and you'll see why as we go through. But let's just look at a couple verses at a time. Genesis 47, starting in verse 11. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, and the best of the land, in the land of, um, and I'm trying to pronounce these right for a reason. It's not Ramses like you might think, it's Ramesses. And this literally means child of the sun, which I, I think that's just cool. And this is exactly as Pharaoh commanded, as the text says, and as you recall from what we left off with uh, last Wednesday. And then we read, Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread according to their families. And this last part of that verse, according to their families, uh, it is the same way that he had been feeding the Egyptians. Uh, now they were coming and buying grain, but what was sold to them was according to their families, which uh, kind of meant like a head count, like how big the families were, what the requirement was of the family. Not every... Uh, I know we had the penny of the day parable recently, but not every family got the same amount. They got what they needed. Uh, and that's going to be important as we go into the following verses. Now, Ramesses that we see here was to be the place for two storehouses or, or two storehouse cities that we're going to reference later. And we're close enough to the end of Genesis now that I get to start teasing some Exodus stuff. So this is, I, this is the part that I love the most about these kind of studies. So these two cities, uh, it's Pithom and Rayum seas, which is spelled very similar. If you want to look at it, it's Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, but it's not the same city name. These are cities inside of Ramesses, Pithom and Rayum seas. Again, that's Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. So these two storehouse cities will eventually be located there. Our text gives us enough to know that it's not there just yet, uh, but, they, but they will be, which is according to the Lord's will, but also how all of these things were going through in the middle of the dearth or in the middle of the famine. Uh, these storehouses are already built in the good years, if you recall from the study. So these are new ones that will come out of all of these events. So it's more evidence also that their, their practices for getting through this dearth don't necessarily end at the end of this famine. The area was likely bordered on the west by the Nile, since we read in Numbers 11, verse 5, that they did eat fish freely in Egypt. And according to Psalm 78, verse 12, their property must have, included, must have included the field of Zoan, which was on one of the outlet channels of the Nile, uh, pretty close to the sea itself. In general, it was close to Egypt's northeast corner, which you see on the map over here, and more or less it was isolated from the bulk of the Egyptian population. Pretty important to note that because the next few verses deal with the remaining years of the dirt. So we'll start in verse 13. And go to verse 21. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. Important, if you make notes in your Bible, to note that there's some time that passes between verse 12 and verse 13. Joseph's not giving bread to his family while the rest of Egypt is without bread. Verse 12 wraps up their situation of being relocated and then cared for like the other masses in Egypt. Verse 13 begins uh, what we see of the Egyptians for the remainder of the famine. 
And it says here, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Uh, Also, just a little bit of description as we go here. Joseph's not out looking for lost money. This is a reference to his job. They're bringing money in for grain so that they can survive. And at this point, all of the money had been brought in. There's no more money to be brought in to purchase grain. And when money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. And Joseph said, Give your cattle, and I will give you for, I will give you for your cattle if money fail. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses, and he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. So now we have another year ticked off uh, the clock in our seven years of famine. This, uh, we were at about two and a half years earlier, wrapped up probably the third year as uh, Jacob and his sons were located and all that was settled. As we begin verse 13, we're likely starting that Um, that third year, maybe midway through the third year, and then what we just read brings us to year four. When that year was ended, they came unto the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land? So this phrase here, uh, that in the second year, it's not the second year of the famine, we already know that we're beyond that point. So it's talking in context, the second year of their running out of money. The first year they ran out of money and they sold cattle. In the second year, now they're out of money and cattle. But it's just that period of time. It's not a new set of time, it's the same seven years, but it started, this context started around the three, three and a half year mark. And then they say unto Joseph, the Egyptians do, buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. What is described here in these verses of the Egyptians? We haven't dealt with anything with, with Jacob's children in this part, but what we see of the Egyptians here, and now, by the way, in Genesis, this is the longest stretch of verses dedicated to Egypt. We should probably note that. Interesting trivia in case there's a test later. But what's described here is a hungry people that will do anything to be fed. They spent all their money. They sold all their cattle. They sold all their land. They sold even themselves that they might be fed. It ought to be how we are over our Lord Jesus. I understand that our mindset is, oh, wow, how awful. They had nothing and they had no way to pay for grain and they were completely dependent on Joseph. It's how we ought to be after our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be so hungry, so desperate to be fed of this book, of the Lord Jesus himself, of him, the eternal word of God, that nothing else matters. There's nothing that would not be sold for one more sitting under the teaching and preaching of his word. We're not there yet, but we ought to be. The people gave their money, their lands, their possessions, and even their own bodies 
Think of Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be no more conformed, or be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We should give our all to Christ who has saved us and who cares for us daily. And the purpose and the reason for us to be uh, so hungry and so mindful of the value of being fed over everything else that we have is what we read there in verse 2 of Romans 12. That we may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Everything we do when we profess to be Christians is proving the will of God. It's either proving it incorrectly or it's proving it correctly. We can't escape from that. It's more than just a fish sticker on our cars. It's who we are. It's our identity. If we show the world that there's something more important than Jesus Christ in our lives, he'll never be important to them based on our testimony. Our testimony should show that that is the most important thing. Our testimony should show that there is nothing else to be feared greater than God himself. We can also see in this just how God does indeed bless his chosen people. We read in this portion of text, Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses. And he fed them with bread, all their cattle for that year. The cattle all now belong to Pharaoh. And who was he employing to take care of the cattle? I mean, isn't God good? Jacob's children are are being fed and cared for for the work that they're providing and they're taking care of all the cattle Joseph just bought for Pharaoh. Joseph is not wrong to do the job that he was put in place to do. Nor are those who will read the text that we just read and say, Joseph bought all everything that they had. He left them nothing. He's not kind at all. He's not tender-hearted toward the needs of the people. But as we've said before, he could not simply have given the grain away. It wouldn't have lasted seven years. It wouldn't have lasted seven minutes. If we were to tell the people of Tulsa that a famine is coming, that the fields will dry up, if we were to tell the people of Tulsa that they're going to get by in four more years, the grocery stores would be wiped out. Anything they could get their hands on, we would. Think four years ago, there might be a toilet paper shortage coming. And then there was. It's kind of prophetic and pathetic, to be honest with you. So that wouldn't have been doing his job. It wouldn't have been diligently doing what he had been called to do. And it's important that we know here that it was the offer of the people. They willingly made the offer, buy us that we might live. Buy us and give us grain that we would survive. Dr. Henry Morris wrote, Whatever gain was involved accrued to Pharaoh, not to Joseph. Joseph was doing his job. It is true that it created what amounted to a feudalistic economy. And a feudalistic economy is just a system of political organizations as in Europe during the Middle Ages in which a vassal served a lord and received protection and land in return. But the alternative, that of placing everyone on a dole system, would have destroyed personal and national morale, would have bankrupted the government, and probably would have culminated in social anarchy. The stores of food would soon have been depleted, and mass starvation would have followed. 
I know I sound like a conservative when I read that quote, but it's absolutely true and history has borne it out time and time and time again. Joseph, after agreeing to the people's proposal, relocated the people in order to expedite distribution of grain and seed and to best utilize the labor that has now been purchased of these people. He didn't, when we read the text that he relocated them, they, they weren't going to concentration camps. They weren't being punished. But they were employed and owned, essentially, by Pharaoh now. They no longer got to choose where they lived comfortably. They had to serve the nation first. That's what they had been called to do. They were as such pilgrims for this period of time. He moved them nearer the various cities where the storehouses were situated. <coughs> Look at verses 22 through 26. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh, and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them. Wherefore they sold not their lands. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day and your, lands for, and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food for your little ones. And they said, How dare you? No. They said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto, the, unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part, or a double tithe, 20%, except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. The priests were the only ones who were entitled to keep the portion assigned them of Pharaoh. And the way it's written here, we note that it was not Joseph's decision. That Joseph couldn't touch this law, and Joseph certainly didn't create this law. It was Pharaoh. It's very clear in, text, uh, in the text that it was Pharaoh who put this thing together. And that this assignment was not done according to the leadership of God the Father by the hand of Joseph under his leadership. This is what Pharaoh had instituted, and this is what Pharaoh was guarding. Pharaoh had established a state religious system. And then he set them above in power, the people. We can see the devastation of such things when we look at the state of the Jews during the Lord's earthly ministry. We're seeing it as we go through that study, are we not? These Pharisees that have set themselves or been set above all the others, the scribes, the interpreters of the law, who also found a way to elevate themselves above all the others, the Sadducees as well, and on and on and on we go. And what eventually happens is exactly what we see the Lord dealing with in the ministry study that we're doing is that it's no, uh, the very things that they're teaching, the one they're supposed to be pointing to, is no longer accessible to them. It's kept at a distance or not interpreted at all. And we have, like the widow woman example that we talked about last week, we have those who most desperately need help having to make way as a squeaky wheel, so to speak, to get the attention of even unrighteous judges that they might be aided. The double tithe that's administered here is what the government of Egypt was to run on while the Egyptians themselves had the remaining 80%. As servants of the state, they had zero overhead. So these percentages are not entirely out of line with what we would imagine running our homes on today when we look at what uh, our take-home is compared to our gross or our income before deductions and taxes and so on and so forth. It should be noted once again that the people considered this grace 
They said, you've saved our lives. They don't cry of oppression. They don't cry of unfairness. Why? There's something more important at stake. Life or death. We look at these remaining verses now, verses 27 through 31. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And uh, again, if you write in your Bibles, you might, might mark multiplied exceedingly. I'm going to give you a little bit of math to consider to go with that here in a minute. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, which obviously dwarfs the end of the famine. So we, we're now crossing that threshold of leaving the seven years of dearth. Uh, we've been doing Isaac's study now for two and a half months because you, you started us on the dearth. And uh, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph said, I will do as thou hast hast said. And he said, Swear unto me, and he sware unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. The famine is now over. Before we even get out of chapter 47, we see the conclusion of the famine. And we are actually able to observe the remaining few years in that middle section of this study. In the span of approximately 50 years, Jacob and his four wives had become a nation of nearly 100. Recall uh, a few lessons back, we talked about the 70 that came out of Canaan with uh, Jacob. And then when you consider also their wives that were not counted in the list, according to Scripture itself, they're nearly 100 people in just 50 years. This is an average increase of 6% a year. When they leave Egypt, their numbers will be closer to 2 million based on the census that we find in numbers. It's a growth rate, uh, well, consider a growth rate of 5% annually that would increase their population from 100 to 2 million in just 215 years. So once again, we see the Lord blessing his chosen people. They're not captives in a strange land. They're a nation inside of another nation. It is a strange land, but for God's people, Every page that I would turn over here is a strange land. It's not home. Even if America showed up on one of those maps, if Tulsa itself showed up on one of those maps, it's not home. Pilgrims, beloved. We read here of Jacob asking uh, Joseph to take a vow to bury him back in the land of their fathers. And we know from the conversation between uh, Jehovah and, and Israel, Jacob, at the altar of Beersheba, that this was coming. We already know that God had said that this would happen, but here we see it acted out. And this was last seen when this vow, putting a hand on her thigh, was last seen when Abraham had asked his faithful servant to find a wife for his son Isaac back in Genesis chapter 24. I'm going to read that in a minute, but uh, Genesis 24. So we've gone almost the same amount of chapters away from that event, and yet we still see the presence of this type of vow taking. Listen to this event. This is a very important moment in history when Abraham asked this nameless faithful servant to go into the land of his fathers to find a wife for Isaac. Genesis 24, we're just going to read the first four verses. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age. 
And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under, thy, under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country, unto my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. So it's just interesting to see that, that covenant-type uh, return. Joseph swore as his father requested, and, um, and what we see next in the very next chapter harkens back to Hebrews 11.21, which says, By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. And that's where we'll pick up, uh, Lord willing, next Wednesday with the blessings on Joseph's children and, and the last words of uh, Israel to his sons.